Hello. Welcome. Now, technically, you're wondering, what the hell am I doing back? I just said the season was over, and yet here you are listening to my beautiful velvety voice yet again. But after the events of Charlottesville, which happened this past weekend, I thought it was time for a much-needed history lesson. So this is an off-season special head-on history. Maybe we'll call it head-on history special. H-O-H-S. Something like that. We'll come up with a clever name for it. This is this is obviously going to go in the post-production as I bounce off ideas with people. But I thought that this would be an important time to demonstrate to you what it is that we historians do. For those of you that are regular listeners who have listened to the first season where I talk about the history of Islam, you'll know that there's a common theme in what I talk about, and that, that the past is prologue, that the past provides context, and that history is not just about recreating the events of the past, but helping to understand the present. To answer the question, how did we get to where we are today? It helps us to look beyond the kind of short-termism that we find in a lot of other disciplines, be these sociology, political science, anthropology, etc. They all provide very important answers. Political scientists can help you explain uh, what's going on in politics, help you what people believe and how they how that uh, gives rise to political beliefs and political actions and and voting behaviors, etc. Sociologists can talk about the interaction between people and society. Anthropologists will give you an ethnography, but historians will give you the context. It's the most kind of holistic approach out of all of them, but they all blend really well together. And so that's what I'm trying to provide today: is to give you that whole holistic worldview to show you how it is that history is more than just talking about the past. It gives you a lens of analysis for understanding the present. So that's what I think I'm going to try to do with Charlottesville. Hopefully I am successful. I should forewarn you, I am not a U.S. historian. Uh, As my Americanist colleagues can attest, I often joke about their field uh, a lot. For those of us like myself who work in the uh, non-American field. I work in the history of the Middle East, South Asia, and North Africa. Um, it, it's, a, it's hard history to do. You have to memorize. You have to learn multiple different languages, right? You don't just get to learn English and then you're a historian. But especially for a weird historian like myself who was trained uh, as the bridge between the pre-modern and the modern, working on, on intellectual thought in the pre-modern world and how it continues into the contemporary world, Um, It's complicated history, and so I want to kind of forewarn people, I'm not an Americanist. I'm not an expert in American history. I'm just a historian. Now, one of my backgrounds is in critical theory and in the the development and studying of race theory in particular, and I have to uh, give credit to my mentors who have really guided me along those lines, historians of gender and science in South Asia like Kavita Philip, who have really shaped the work that I do. So I do work on histories of race and how the other are developed vis-a-vis Orientalism and science, Um, and I'm going to try to bring that background into what we talk about today. I'm not going to give you American history. I'm not going to give you a history of, of the Civil War. That's not my area of expertise, but I am going to talk about how global ideas of race really shaped um, the Confederacy, the Civil War, and the things that happened afterwards, and how this relates to the nation-state and why we're still grappling with it today. So I'm going to talk specifically about the developments of race theory and how it's at the heart of the nation-state.
Before I start on that history, we should mention what is Charlottesville. Future people who are listening, hello, hopefully you're enjoying. You are listening to a moment in time. On uh, this past weekend, uh, the 12th of August, 2017, there was a rally held called Unite the Right, in which white supremacists, a group known as the alt-right, which is basically an attempt to rebrand white supremacy into something more mainstream, uh, KKK members and neo-Nazis marched in the small college town of Charlottesville, Virginia, carrying, of all things, tiki torches. I shit you not, future people, they had tiki torches. And they carried these tiki torches while yelling out things like, White Lives Matter, White Power, Jews will not replace us. That's right, Jews will not replace us, because there's nothing like some old-fashioned anti-Semitism to get the blood boiling. And they rallied around a particular statue, that is the statue of Robert E. Lee. And it became quite a violent uh, protest. They were supposedly protesting the coming down of that statue. The reality is that none of them mention the statue at all. It all becomes about white grievance. But it does turn violent. Uh, they beat the counter-protesters with batons. The This kind of emerging uh, movement of the alt-right has adopted fascinating tactics from Nazi Germany, the kind of brown shirts and the black shirts from Mussolini's Italy and from uh, Hitler's Germany, of people who are unofficial uh, enforcers, basically street gangs who are not associated with the government directly per se, but who carry out violent acts against protesters uh, and beat them. And they carry around wooden shields and sticks and batons, uh, some of them very openly carrying around AK-47s and uh, military gear. Uh, they they're militias who pretend they're in the army and the military, but they're not. They're usually uh, middle-aged white men who are seeking some type of war glorification without ever actually going to war. They all showed up with, with all sorts of weapons, and it became violent. And unfortunately, it led to the death of an individual, Heather Hare, who uh, was run over by a car. I'm not going to mention the terrorist's name because I don't want to give him any credit for it. But he rammed his car into a crowd of people, injuring dozens upon dozens and killing Heather hair. For those of you that are listening, it should be noted that 2017, more people have died by people, by Trump supporters, self-avowed Trump supporters, than they have by refugees, immigrants, uh, Muslims, or foreign terrorists combined. More Americans have died by Trump supporters. That is a statistical fact. And yet, as I'm, I'm talking about this, there are still ongoing uh, rallies that are being held. We have one coming up soon here where I'm at in Southern California, a rally against uh, immigrant violence, this idea that somehow immigrants have been committing horrific crimes against the indigenous population. So let's talk a little bit about this history. How did we come to this moment where we have Nazis marching on the streets? Now, this is quite interesting, as a lot of the pushback that we've seen in this moment is from the tepid response of Donald Trump. Donald Trump gave a really weak, oh, both sides are doing horrible things, and people got angry. They're like, you know what? You should be able to condemn Nazis. It's really easy to do. They're the bad guys, so on and so forth. But and and then a lot of this became very patriotic, like oh, not in America, uh, we fought the Nazis, not here, not now, not ever. And this rhetoric is certainly it sounds good, and and it maybe it makes us feel good, but there is something here that we need to unpack, and there's this idea that somehow Nazism is foreign to America. 
But there are deep connections with Nazism in the United States and its history that we need to look at. And I'm going to, to be very blunt. Nazis were deeply inspired by the United States' racial policies. Jim Crow laws, uh, laws about segregation, the laws that came out post-Civil War uh, were all things that inspired Nazis. The Nuremberg laws were sort of considered one of uh, the world history's most uh, horrific racial laws in which they created uh, second-class citizens out of minority, but they were actually inspired first and foremost by the United States. And this may seem um, a kind of uh, bizarre claim or, or something exaggerated on my part, but I've pulled the receipts here, uh, as, as is wont to say in meme culture nowadays, pulling the receipts. See, I can be hip. In 1935, you had the National Socialist Handbook of Law and Legislation. This is a guide for the Nazis and, and how they build this kind of society. And they declared in that National Socialist Handbook that the United States had achieved the fundamental, quote, recognition of the need for the Vuxtish nation. The Vuxtish is a uh, the race state becomes the heart of German Nazism. The Vuxtish or the Volk, the kind of folk people. This like, romantic notion that there is a single unified race uh, or a German race, an Aryan race. And so here we have the National Handbook of Law and Leg the National Social Socialist Handbook of Law and Legislation saying that. They, the United States had recognized the fund, had a fundamental recognition of the need for this uh, race state. Hitler himself and Mein Kampf, that's right, we're going right back to Mein Kampf, writes, the American Union categorically refuses the immigration of physically unhealthy elements and simply ex excludes the immigrants of certain races. This is an important quote. This is, this is Hitler telling us that he's looking to the immigration policies of the United States, specifically early 20th century, um, and he's inspired by them. He prays, he goes on, and he praises Americans for having, quote, gunned down the millions of redskins to only a few hundred thousand. So the genocide of Native Americans is another thing that Nazi Germany was very, very keen on. Now we would go, well, what the fuck is Hitler talking about? How could he possibly look at the United States and think that this was a uh, something he could be inspired by? But this is bullshit. He's just seeing what he wants to see. That's not true. In 1960, a book by a New York lawyer named Madison Grant, uh, the book is called The Passing of the Great Race or the Racial Bias of European History. This book becomes one of the most popular, best-selling books books of its time period 1960 and it was read by a great many american legislators we also happen to find it in nazi germany where nazi lawyers studied it so you have american lawyers studying this book and you have german lawyers studying both this book so you see this kind of global connection and in the book madison grant he develops this theory that in order to improve the white race in the united states migrants with genetic flaws would be encouraged to undergo sterilization that they would have to become sterilized and this this brings about the uh, policy of eugenics that we're going to talk about that became very big in the United States and in turn inspired Nazi Germany. Now, that does not to say that the entire Nazi ideology comes from America. That's not true. That's indigenous to Germany. That developed from German thinkers. Race theory is, is a big thing in Europe for a long time with Orientalism and all sorts of others. You have individuals like Gubinyu. Gubinyu writes that there is a sort of 
pre-Adamite religion, that there is a, a race, I should say, a pre-Adamite, meaning that these people are not descended from Adam, but they are a separate race. And he includes in them what he calls the Negroes and the Semites, that would be Jews and black people, that these people are animalistic, that they're not actually human or de uh, descended from Adam, that that's actually the Aryan. So this is a, that's a European ideology. But what we see is that the legislation to fashion citizenship based on race, that is an American idea. The Germans were fascinated with the American capacity to create the category of the second-class citizen. And that's at the heart of America. That is not an importation from Germany. This is something that America has been doing from its very beginning, determining citizenship based off of race. The foundation of this country was white males, white land-owning males as citizens, and people of color, specifically black people, who are slaves, not citizens and therefore not having any rights. So citizenship as race bait or based in race is an American idea and it's at the heart and origins of America. And so when we see books like the 1916 book by Madison Grant, that's not something unique. That's simply a new prescription for an old description. He's prescribing a new way of achieving the goal that was at the heart of the kind of citizenship project that we see in America. And this all comes to head during the Confederacy. Now, we often hear today people waving around confederate flags and celebrating uh, confederate battles by dressing up and reenacting that the confederacy was about states rights and that's not true and yet again i've pulled the receipts here and i'm going to prove to you that confederacy was not just about states rights but states rights that are specifically regarding slavery and the institution of it and the idea that later on you have these people who go, oh, well, no, it's about Southern heritage, Southern heritage. This is a memory problem. This is a deliberate historical amnesia that ignores the facts. I mean, dudes, if you really wanted to celebrate uh, Southern heritage, like what, mint julep and obesity? Like, what exactly are you celebrating? What do you mean by, by Southern heritage, right? I mean, this, this, it's this weird, bizarre Southern heritage. What, fried chicken, fried foods, lots of butter? What is Southern heritage if you're not celebrating the fact that these people fought for slavery? I mean, Robert E. Lee and, and Jefferson Davis, these people didn't go, you know what, we have the right to our mint and juleps. No, they were talking about slavery. They were talking about the institution of it. So don't give me this heritage bullshit because there's a lot of ways that you can celebrate heritage. Look, the South is a fucked up place, but it's also a beautiful place, right? And I'm sure there's a lot of cultural elements that you can celebrate in the same way that, that I think an Arab can celebrate Arab heritage, right? Through food and music and fashion, all sorts of elements. You can celebrate heritage without putting up fucking Confederate statues or waving around flags of secession. That's just the reality of it. But that rant aside, let's look at what the Confederates themselves said. So you take a look at the place like Mississippi. That's right, fucking Mississippi. The bane of every poor spelling bee in middle school, Mississippi. Then their Cozibelli, Cozibelli would be their declaration of war. They write, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. 
Now, I didn't make this quote up. Go and Google it. Go and look these things up. You don't have to know multiple languages. Like for those of us that are historians of you know medieval Middle East and modern Middle East, you got to learn Arabic and Hebrew, and you got to learn a little bit of Turkish and Persian, etc. You don't need to know. You, you speak English. You can find these documents for yourselves. I pulled them up for you in one place, so you can use it as a resource and learn from this. But you can do this yourself. Texas, same same, Kazi Belly. They write in this free government. All white men are and of right ought to be entitled to equal civil and political rights. That the servitude of the African race as existing in these states is mutually beneficial to both bond and free and is abundantly authorized and justified by the experience of mankind. That the, in other words, that slavery is good for both the slave and the slave owner and that it is the norm of world history. A Richmond paper, this is Richmond, Virginia, right? We're talking about Charlottesville, Virginia. Richmond paper, they write, We are fighting for independence that our great and necessary domestic institution of slavery shall be preserved. Here you go, right in their claim. But you could say, oh, this is Mississippi and Texas and some Richmond paper. That doesn't represent all the Confederates. How about Jefferson Davis, right, the president of the Confederacy, a man that we still have statues to in the South. He writes, African slavery as it exists in the United States is a moral, a social, and a political blessing. Now, what the fuck do you think he meant by that? Did he mean states' rights? Southern heritage? No, he's talking about enslaving African Americans and wanting it and fighting for it. So when we talk about uh, the South seceding, it wasn't because the North decided to be uh, a bully. It was because the North said, we're going to abolish slavery. So at the heart of the Confederacy is slavery. These quotes prove it. These are facts. I don't give a fuck how many times your granddaddy reenacted the some southern battle. I don't give a shit how many times you went to the Daughters of the Confederacy meeting. I don't care how much your mommy and pappy told you that the Confederate flag was about Southern pride. It's not. The facts are right there in the documents. These are the Confederates' own words. Either you take them for their words, or you just ignore it and pretend and make shit up. But how is this making shit up coming about? Why do we forget this? Why do we not talk about this particular moment in history? Why is it that when we talk about the Civil War, we allow people to talk about Southern heritage? Why is it that when you look at American textbooks, there is still quite a bit of it that tries to uh, kind of erase away or ameliorate those differences. So yeah, the southern states were about slavery, but they were also about states' rights. This isn't a, f a fiction. Pick up any American history textbook right now. There is currently a battle going on between Texas and the other states because Texas decided that it, American textbooks need to talk about slavery as indentured servitude and that civil uh, the Civil War should be referred to as states' rights. They literally are changing history in order to remember the past differently while historians are pushing back against this going, no, look at the facts. Why did we allow this to happen? And that's because post-Civil War, there was a deep desire to reconcile. Both sides wanted to come back together, and they wanted to reconcile their differences. And so there, this produces a sort of historical amnesia, an attempt to kind of gloss over any of those differences. Nowhere is this more evident than the fact that... Um, 
after Nazism was defeated in Germany, there were trials. Nazi commanders, Nazi leaders, Nazi ideologues, they were put on trial, the Nuremberg trial, and they were held accountable for their actions. But after the Civil War, not a single uh, Confederate architect, author, thinker, fighter was put on trial. Robert E. Lee, Jefferson, none of them. That tells you something. Nazi Germany is remembered by Germans today as a horrible moment in their past. They deal with it in a critical fashion. They go, look at what we did. This was terrible. But because of this historical amnesia, this desire to gloss over the differences, we give credence or give space to people who, re who revise this history, give this revisionist southern heritage, southern states' rights bullshit. This is evident. You see it, and it isn't until we kind of critically deal with this history that we're going to be able to really move forward. The fact that the Nazis were put on trial but the Confederates weren't is a blight on American history, but it's also telling. It tells us how we deal with that past and those differences. So let's come down to the actual statues themselves. The Civil War statues have nothing to do with Southern heritage. They don't. They weren't even put up after the Civil War. People try to talk about it as if it was after the Civil War. That's not what happened. Most of them were put up in the 20th century. So take this particular statue, the statue of Robert E. Lee. This was put up in Charlottesville by a guy named Paul Goodlow McIntyre in 1924. He was the one who commissioned it. He didn't make it himself. He commissioned an artist to do it. Paul Goodlow McIntyre is a very famous philanthropist from the 1920s, and he put up this statue to celebrate Robert E. Lee. And you can go, oh, well, maybe he, was, he cared about Southern heritage. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. He actually had a, de uh, a deed that he left um, in 1926, a deed in which he bequeathed land. He bequeathed a series of land known as Washington, what is it called today, Washington Park. And he said that this land, Washington Park, would be, quote, for the use as a playground for the colored citizens of Charlottesville. You go, okay, he's using the word colored. That just is a product of his time. But hey, look, he gave a playground for Charlottesville. Look at him. He can't possibly be racist. His statue is, of course, about Southern heritage. Uh, no. The deed goes on because it also bequeaths another park for white people. Noting one for white and one for colored. In other words, he was a segregationist. The man supported the idea of separate but equal, of black people having their own park and white people having their own park. This is the person that commissioned the statue, Paul Goodloe McIntyre. It wasn't about celebrating American history. It wasn't about remembering the past in some type of glorified way or, or going, let's celebrate this great moment of our past. It was about racism. It was about segregationism. He put up that statue at the same time that he demanded that there be separate parks for white people and black people. He didn't need to fight a civil war. He used his money to economically divide people. He bequeathed a park for black people. Oh, how generous of him. But a park for white people because he wanted to keep these races separate. 
And this comes at a particular time. The statues all, most of these Southern Confederate statues come about during the 1920s or so. This is also the same era of racial integrity, of the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. The exact same time that that statue is commissioned and dedicated, 1924. The Racial Integrity Act actually is passed by Virginia. And it is the law that codifies the difference between the citizens. It creates two citizen categories. One category known as white and the other category known as colored. And how do you determine who is colored? Through the one drop rule. That's right. Any of you who have taken an American history class will remember the one drop rule. This basically states that if you have even one drop of blood in you that is not white, you are therefore Negro or colored. This is the type of racial legislation. Uh, the uh, Racial Integrity Act goes on to be anti-miscegenation, uh, right? To keep the races from marrying one another. It promotes eugenics for, quote-unquote, the feeble mind and the undesirable. It's this type of legislation that actually inspired the Nazis, like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. It's this type of language, the idea of using science and division to categorize people into different groups and then create a first-class citizen or a citizen based off of race, white people and a second-class citizen colored people this is what inspired the nazis and the idea of eugenics was huge both nazis and americans practiced it that's right we americans practiced eugenics and it was against people that we found that were disabled mentally challenged um people who were considered quote-unquote feeble-minded and also the undesirables that language of purifying the races of ethnically purging and keeping people from repopulating um, and, and trying to create the race state, right? The Volksstate is both at the heart of America and at the heart of Germany. And Germany fuses that type of legislation with their own racial ideologies that we talked about earlier. Now, it's easy to kind of look at this and go, oh, well, this was in our past. This is only what 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 uh, the Nazis do. And it's true. There is such a thing as American Nazism. In 1959, the American Nazi Party was founded by someone named George Lincoln Rockwell. Some of you may be familiar with him. And guess where he founded it? Arlington, Virginia. So Virginia, my home state. I love Virginia. But... This is the history there. And we can talk about Nazis as American Nazis as kind of a fringe movement. But the reality is that racism and citizenship by race has been part of the American project for a long time. And while Americans were, didn't go on to create concentration camp to kill Jews, they did use the legislation to restrict, halt, and ban immigration of Jewish European of European Jews to ban and uh, the immigration of Chinese, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the internment of Japanese Americans, uh, the creation of Jim Crow, different water fountains, different right to legal uh, rights for people of color versus white people. All of that is is American, and it's as American as apple pie. We can dismiss the 1959 American Nazi party as just fringe, but we cannot dismiss the fact that you have things like the Southern strategy in which uh, Nixon and Lee Outwater openly talk about the dangers of uh, urban areas, the dangers of those people who are kind of foreign, of immigrants, of the need for law and order. We've heard this law and order talk before, right? Who says it? 
Donald Trump. How about America first? America first was the slogan of the American Nazi Party. It was the slogan of the KKK in the 1930s. So America first sounds great. It's actually literally related to the KKK and the Nazi Party. We have coins, KKK coins, that say America first on there. So when we see people marching in Charlottesville and they're shouting out things like, blood and soil, which is in the German is Blut in Buden, the uh, blood and soil argument, which was popularized by the Nazi Richard Walther Deray, in which he tried to romanticize the German peasants. It was the cosmopolitan urban Jew versus the German rural peasant. That language is still around today. When Stephen Miller dismissed Jim Acosta, Stephen Miller is the chief strategist of the Trump campaign and goes, oh, you cosmopolitan elites, cosmopolitan elites. That language of division, of creating citizenship based off of some racial category, namely white, is at the heart of right-wing politics in America today. And that's not unique to Republicans. The Democratic Party was at one point right-wing up until the Civil Rights Movement in which the, the Southern Democrats shifted over and became Republican. This anti-immigrant sentiment, this idea of racial citizenship, is part of American history. And unless we deal with this part of American history, we really confront the racism. We refuse historical amnesia. We refuse to allow the past to be weaponized. Unless we step forward and go, wait a minute, we need to address the fact that citizenship has been defined narrowly, and over many, many years, slowly it has been expanded into uh, something a little bit more inclusive, but still restrictive, right? Today we go, well, anyone can be American, but you're suspect if you're a Mexican immigrant, you're suspect if you're Muslim, you're suspect if you're Middle East, you're kind of suspect if you're LGBTQ, right? We still have that, you're a refugee, you're suspect, we still have those racial categories in contemporary politics and they have this deep history that has never been confronted the reason why nazism isn't flourishing in germany anymore is because the germans deal with their history in a critical manner they look back at that and they go nazism was a real part of german ideology it wasn't just a fringe movement it took over we were all participants or complicit in this this is how these categories of race uh, were created and this is how they were used against people to destroy people their textbooks don't glorify nazism people don't wave around nazi flag and talk about german pride they don't talk about that they instead deal with it in a critical way and this is a this is an example that the united states needs to take on it needs to take a look at its textbooks and go what how are we talking about racism how are we talking about slavery are we trying to dismiss as indentured servitude are we trying to pat ourselves on the back that we somehow freed slaves we've spent more time and in the duration of american history there's been more time spent with slavery than without slavery and there's been more time with racial policies like the uh racial integrity act like the anti-chinese immigration the chinese exclusion act anti-immigration laws miscegenation law anti-miscegenation laws uh, eugenics there have been more times with that than there have been not how do we talk about that do we talk about it with a sense of self-aggrandizement and glorification and back padding or do we talk about it critically and it isn't until we address this historical amnesia
explanation until we bring out the receipts and deal with them like we have done in this podcast right here to treat talk about citizenship and how race has been at the heart of it and then challenge and deconstruct it we're going to continue to have people who are going to march on our streets waving american flags right next to nazi flags we're going to continue to have people who are going to look at robert e lee and not see a confederate leader who was supporting slavery but instead will see a hero who will look at the confederacy and not see a shameful moment of our past but instead something to be celebrated if you want to defeat white supremacist terror you have to address the ideology that has been at the heart of american politics for ages it's not just nazis it's not just white supremacists it's the politics of contemporary america that's the only way to actually tackle it hopefully this podcast has been or this episode has been useful to you i tried to bring my expertise in histories of race and citizenship and how they interact with one another and state power hopefully it has been useful if nothing else you can use this podcast as a resource use the quotes that i have presented to you in your facebook arguments in your thanksgiving argument with your racist uncle this is what you can do and as usual i'm going to end with some book recommendations for you if you are interested in further reading my first book recommendation is michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. It's a fantastic, fantastic look at how it's a work of legal history that looks at how legally and through policy and through uh, laws, uh, racism from seg- from slavery and segregation are reinscribed in new ways. It talks about mass incarceration. So if you want to understand how racism in law continues, even though se- uh, slavery ends, even though segregation ends, how it continues and it replicates itself, Michelle Alexander's is a great book. A good complement to that book would be the Netflix special uh, 13th, uh, which is a great uh, documentary on uh, the 13th Amendment. It includes interviews by politicians, activists, lawyers, a very Amer- you know brilliant American historians or historians of the United States, including one of my favorite, Kevin Gannon, who's known as the, the Tattooed Professor on Twitter. Uh, so definitely check that out. And I would also recommend um, another book. This book is a little bit controversial, but I, I think people will enjoy it. It's called Hitler's American Model, The United States in the Making of Nazi Race Law by James Q. Whitman. This is actually a great book by a uh, professor, by Princeton University uh, Press. This uh, is really kind of where a lot of this original research comes from. Um, in particular, how Hitler models a lot of the race laws, the Nuremberg laws, from what he sees in the United States. Now, he doesn't argue that the Nazis were just inspired or take wholesale from America. No, he instead argues that there's a sympathy there, right? So it's not it's not a causal thing that, oh, the Nazis wouldn't have existed if America didn't do this. No, no, that's not how history works. It's not about causal. It's about correlation. It's about sympathy. And there is very clear sympathy. He does a very meticulous job of uh, proving how American race law provided this kind of blueprint for Nazi race law. Anyway, I'm going to end it there for today. Thank you for tuning into this head-on history special. We're going to be back to History of Islam in Season 2 in a few weeks, so be sure to stay tuned, catch up on our old episodes, leave reviews, contact me on Twitter and on Instagram at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. You can also use the hashtag HeadOnHistory. Anyways, thank you for tuning in, and stay smart, beautiful history nerds. Mm-hmm.